Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to episode 216 for February 2nd, 2015. On today's show, we're talking about double tenons versus large single tenons, mortising for curves, and when to sharpen your handsaws. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Uh, you should definitely go to harrys.com and check out, well, they've got this new uh, Wood Talk Valentine coupon code that you can use, and you can actually get the Winston set engraved. So that's a free $15 engraving, and it's got to be your first purchase. So save 15 bucks, get the chrome engraved Winston set for just $25. That's harrys.com and enter the coupon code WOODTALKVALENTINE. You know, that could be a really smooth deal if you think about it. Ha <laughs> ha. That's good. You're on fire. You're my Wood Talk Valentine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we have another uh, sponsor here. And, you know, sometimes tools stand apart the most when they're working all together. Explore a full system designed to deliver more precise results at FestoolUSA.com. Booyah. And we'd also like to thank Larry Spitz, John Holton, and Andy Parker those three gentlemen all went to Woodchalk. Yeah, Woodchalk. That's our new oh, website. Woodchalk. Is that our competitor? <laughs> that it is. Uh, woodtalkshow.com. And they went to the left-hand column where they have some nice links where you could just click a donation link, either a recurring or a one-time donation and help support the show. So thank you, Larry, John, and Andy. Sound like three nice guys there. We appreciate the support. All right, let's get into what's on the bench. For me, just moving into the next guild project, the, the chest of drawers, which now... Gotta tell you, Shannon, I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm, I am big enough of a man to admit when I'm wrong. Fortunately, it doesn't happen often, uh, but it did happen. And I, I started looking a little deeper and I'm like, you know what? Dang it. I think Shannon's right. I think that that is a chest of drawers. Uh, there is ambu- ambiguity there. There's definitely ambiguity, but when you really dig into the pure definition of it, it's pretty clear to me that if it's a tall standalone set of drawers, it's usually called a chest of drawers and to be called a dresser, it's either got to be low or have like the mirror attached to it to imply that you were addressing in front of it type of thing. So I was like, you know what? Darn it. Now I got to go back and change all my titles and put chest of drawers back in there because it's not really fair to call this thing a dresser. Now, is it relative to the height of the individual using it? Because my daughter is rather tall. (laughs) Uh, No, fortunately, I think it's like single row and then maybe it splits up to another row of drawers on the top. That could still be, uh, it's still in the chest of drawers territory. I think it implies that there's going to be a dressing mirror or at least you have that low boy style so design. put like a put like a shaving mirror on top if you go to harrys.com and use the code woodtalkvalentine you could probably get a shaving mirror uh, well you can at least get a nice kit to shave with a mirror and then set it on top and then it's yeah. a dresser i actually did think about how funny would it be if like at the end i just built this little tiny frame for a little teeny tiny mirror and then go <laughs> there now it's a dresser <laughs> you know uh but nice. so i started on it and got all the parts milled and i'll tell you uh, doing a chest of drawers and two nightstands all at the same time sounds fantastic on paper. Uh, and then you actually start milling all those parts and you go, oh, wow, this there's just a lot of meat to this one. This is this is going to take me a while to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. So just it's really just a challenge keeping organized and making sure that all the parts are marked correctly. Uh, that's really been my, my biggest challenge for the last week. But I'm jumping right into it. Uh, I've got my shop full of Babinga dust, which is always a good time for the Wood Whisperer. I enjoy that. And uh, moving right along. Well, you know, just that whole dresser, chest of drawers thing that's like, you know, I say spaghetti sauce, Mark says gravy. So I think we'll... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I like that. Uh, Shannon, what about you? 
Well, uh, last week I mentioned that I got three commissions, so I started on the first one. It's a small uh, four-shelf display shelf thing. It's it's one of those uh, dealies. It's got four post legs, and everything's open all the way around, so there isn't really a front, back, or side. It's uh, just meant to be visible all around. Wow. I'm making it out of soft maple, and I'm kind of still toying with the how I want to finish it. Um, you know, obviously it's meant to just blend in and what's supposed to show up or the, the stuff that goes on it. And, uh, I, it was really kind of cool because I was talking to this lady about, well, what, what are you going to put on it? And I think I said this in the last show, one of the things she's displaying is a bowl that I made for her and it's a walnut bowl and everything else is somewhat dark in color. So I thought if I went with maple, it would, kind of contrast but also kind of blend into the background a little bit Mm -hmm. but it just seems something i'm really struggling with it just seems so blah um and i have to keep reminding myself that the purpose of this is to show off stuff that goes on it not the the display shelf (laughs) you don't want to detract from the items being displayed yeah so i've got everything milled up and i mean it's it's really very simple put together it's just a series of dados and and shelves and things to go together and you know i i've i've compromised and put a little bit of a taper on the legs at the bottom just to make it look a little bit more delicate. Mm-hmm. And I know that I just need to walk away and just let it be done, but it's just so hard because it just looks so boring yeah. without anything on it. So yeah, some projects are like that and and it's okay. I think you got, you, you hit the nail on the head there. I think it's like this thing is supposed to celebrate the stuff that's on it and not necessarily be the piece of, uh, you know, the most attractive thing about this whole <laughs> arrangement right. here. This, this is the perfect example of, um, oh, I forgot who it was who wrote in, the Project Creep episode. This oh, is one yeah. of those that could I could be really guilty of Project Creep mm-hmm. really quickly if I'm, if I'm not careful. Sure. Um, at the same time, I do have a, it is a commission. So there is an actual dollar amount that I have. Need to make sure I hit here, so I suppose that will probably be the uh, the ultimate uh, stop. Walk away, <laughs> right? You're losing money right now. Yeah, money, Walk away. Money will do it every time. All right, Matt. What about you? Well, kind of like you, I am. Uh, I'm just starting a uh, furniture build. Uh, I'm calling it a dresser, but I think I'm gonna have to give it away to a much taller person, <laughs> or I'll just put something. I'll just like maybe like dig a hole in the floor and just have her kind of like stand a little bit higher. And I, I don't know, <laughs> but anyways, that's what that's what I'm doing. I'm running into almost the same issue where it's like one of those man, this looks fantastic on paper, and then when you actually get down in there, and as you said, you start looking at those components and start milling them. You're like, how did the, how, these multiply like rabbits? <laughs> what is going on here? This stuff just goes on and on and on. So I am at the point where I at least have the components for the body, the the carcass of the piece of furniture already milled and gluing up. I did run into one issue, and that's I made the mistake of one key component, which is going to be for the top. I must have removed more material on one side while doing the thickness planing than I did the other because once I was done with all that milling, once I was gluing them up uh, for making the wider panel, everything was nice and flat. As soon as I took it out of the clamps, I gave it about a day. That one single board just did a nice little cup. Oh. So the only thing I can figure, and I'm more than confident of this now of it, is the fact that I must have removed too much material on one side. And what makes me really think that I did that was I was I don't use a thickness planer sled. I don't know if you guys have ever done it, but for these boards, they were really wide. I didn't want to rip them down and run them through the joiner and then have yet one more glue up line. So I decided just to experiment and make a uh, thickness planer sled. 
And I ended up doing that. I got great results with it. Little plug here for those who are a Wooby level patron. This is going to be your bonus level episode Wooby, Wooby. coming up in February. Nice. <laughs> And uh, but so I ran it through, did a great job with that, had a lot of fun with it, almost thought about using that purely for all the milling. But that has to be the issue with this one board. All the other ones that went through perfectly fine. This one, like I said, I'm confident I just spent a lot of time on one side and that made this little issue. You know, sometimes poop happens and, you know, you, you, you get to a point where you think you're super I don't know, like you're Mr. Uh, woodworking Ninja and you got this stuff mm-hmm. down and then you just get this board that reminds you that like the board is actually the boss. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I, I had that happen a couple of times on this project too, uh, where I thought, okay, let me, you know, cause when I mill parts down and I'm trying to, to slice big parts off of it, I have to be cautious. Uh, I've just been burned too many times by wood that moves once it's being split. So I wanted to give myself enough and I was ripping these things on a table saw and some of these boards just went whoop, like, <laughs> uh, like haywire, like pretzeled after the cut. And I was just like, Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, and this is like eight quarter Babinga stock. So I have to go back and get more. Uh, oh, but so- no. sometimes the wood just has a mind of its own. I mean, it certainly, you could have, you know, milled it too much on one side versus the other, but it could have also just been, you know, the wood being wood and doing right. what it does. Well, you know, the, the horrible part about it was, like I said, as soon as I got done with the milling, I laid them down on the assembly table, a.k.a. my table top, my table saw top, mm. and they were dead flat. In fact, I'm almost I was looking at it thinking, did like elves come in here and do this? Because this normally never happens for me. <laughs> it never goes this well. Right. And then, like I said, to come down after the glue up and everything and having it there, that was just. But the good thing is this is early enough on. I still have other material. And as always, I bought just a little bit extra. And there's just enough wiggle room in here. Literally, that I could probably remake the top and not worry too much about it. In fact, I could probably take the existing top, this this particular component, and reuse it elsewhere. Probably rip it down so that I don't have to worry about that bow and use it as interior components and still get the same result. But yeah, it was definitely one of those. What the? <laughs> not you for a loop. Yes. Definitely. Let's get into what's new. Got a couple things to share with you. First of all, just want to mention this Friday doing a TWW live session. It's our first one for the new year. January was kind of crap in a, in a nutshell for us. And we postponed and just decided not to do a show in January. So the first one of the year is this Friday and we're, we're trying to see if the later schedule works any better. So it's going to be at 8 PM Eastern because uh, everybody, every time we did it during the day, we got a lot of complaints, but here's the problem. You know, we're a family too, and I've got a three-year-old. So it makes it very difficult for me to just say on Friday, I'm going to start doing something like both of us will be in the shop at uh what would be what six o'clock our time. So, uh, so this will be a little bit later because uh, we got a babysitter and uh, hopefully everyone will appreciate that. If the numbers are better, we will keep it at that later time frame. Otherwise we'll do it during the day like we did before. Uh, but it's, it's dedication. I tell you, most couples who get a babysitter, they like go out and have fun, but <laughs> what is fun? Shannon, I don't even know what that term means anymore. We'll have to edit that out because everybody <laughs> oh, in the guild knows Mark, that Mark's had so to much describe, fun. If I have to describe to you what couples do for fun um, when they have a babysitter, I think we have to talk. Uh, last time we did that, we had a need for a babysitter. So <laughs> uh, cause and effect here. Anyway, all right. So, Matt, you want to grab the next uh, next link we have here? 
Yep, absolutely. This came in, this is referred to as the English Lumberyard, and it's a great little video, very nicely produced. I love the flying uh, graphics that are in there, just really, really nice. And basically, it's a a guided tour around um, the English Woodland Timber Company. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really neat, a lot of fun watching them put stuff together. The the, the fun part is them talking about some of the, the domestics that they have in there and watching them actually start to kind of fill in order. A machine towards the end of it, one of the milling machines, I noticed they kind of compress all the sawdust and the chips, and it literally poops out these nuggets of wood. And so what, I'm assuming like, uh, they must sell these giant pellets for heating or something. I was going to say fire starters or something. That's right. They're, they're big, giant, little, well, big, giant. Big, me, giant, uh, little, huge. They're, big, little. Giant, they're a giant <laughs> little turd. <laughs> little wood turds. I like that. Yeah, so that that's it's a really neat look, kind of a fun little walk around. And for those of us in the states that are probably like, I don't know how they do it over there in, in England or anything. Well, you get to watch them uh, doing it in their lumber yard the way that you would normally see somebody like Shannon walking around, going, uh, "We need to fill this order. Uh, who's going to fill the order?" Yeah, it's it's really cool. Lots of great visuals. And Shannon, I wanted to ask you. They mentioned in there part of their regular process is to you know make these things into their thicker. It looks like about eight quarter boards, and then they let them sit outside and air dry to about 25% and then they throw them in the kiln. So I was curious, is that a standard practice? Is that a better way to do it or what's the deal? How do we do it here? That's standard. Is it? Okay. Yeah. When you've got it, you need the, the wood needs to be dry ish before you put it in a kiln. Okay. If you stick 30% or 25% or, or greater wood into a kiln, um, it will go nuts. Yeah. Um, you, you're just, cause what it is, is there's, there's, what's the term there's bound water and there's free water. Um, there's a outstanding article in the lost art press blog about the difference between bound moisture and free moisture. And is it just the moisture in the plant cells behind the cell wall? That's the bound yeah, moisture. So the stuff that's free, that's kind of floating around in the, in the little tubes, the fibers that's free. The bound stuff is actually inside the cell walls itself. The, yeah. the, the cells are saturated with it. If you take a freshly cut board and you stand it up on end, there will be a puddle of water under it in like a couple of hours. Um, Same fact, thing for most, Matt, by the way. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah lately, I've happens. really been having that issue, especially when I drink too much coffee and I yeah. don't plan it well. Definitely. You do not want to stand him up in a corner for four hours. No. For four hours. Puddle every no. time. Every time. It's not It's not a good time for anybody. <laughs> All right, I was just we curious because I heard that. About half of our square footage of our yard is dedicated to air dry yards. Okay. And when the stuff comes in, whether it's domestic or exotic, depending on the species and how dry it is, it will sit in that yard for a couple of weeks up to six months before it actually goes in the kiln. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, sounds interesting. nothing quick about making lumber. <laughs> Kilns haven't sped it up that much. Yeah. Cool. I thought for sure you were going to say that that was the continental method and that you guys use the colonial method. Well, the continental method, they don't dry to 6 to 8%. I can tell you that much. They stop around 12 to 15 because it's a heck of a lot wetter over there than it is here. You know, people say we're in a hurry. Man. <laughs> What's your rush, people? Gosh. They also use thicker lumber there. Only yeah. in North America does four-quarter really get made. Like and the mills and, all over the world cut four quarter specifically for North America and they grumble about it because the rest of the world buys, you know, eight quarter, sometimes six quarter as low as they go. They, they don't like the thin stuff. I don't like it either because well, I buy four quarter and a crap is never even close to what I need it to be. Yeah. Imagine that uh, <clears throat> Yankee lumber yards trying to get as much out of a single board as they can. 
Well, if you look at the cost of eight-quarter lumber and the cost of four-quarter lumber, it's not that much different. That's because four-quarter has a premium on it because the mills have to specifically cut it for these annoying North Americans. We'll just call it what it is, annoying Americans. The Canadians just kind of follow along because it's going to the same continent. <laughs> nice. Canadians are too nice. They'd be like, whatever. Sorry. We'll take any size, eh? We'll take eight-quarter. Sorry. Okay, sorry. All right. Uh, so the next that. one we have is a, a, a really cool video called Art, Dust, and Grease. And this was actually shared with me by, and I'll, uh, we'll be talking about this a little bit later, but Brandon Gore, we have an interview coming up next week with him, and he uh, recommended this video, and it's really, really good. Again, it's called Gas, Dust, and Grease. Just one of those really well-shot things featuring a woodworker artist called Tom Jones, and uh, not not the singer. And He's going to start singing unusual. By him. <laughs> yeah. And a uh, really cool looking guy. And he does a lot of great woodworking, but he's also into motorcycles. And it just kind of is a profile of an artist uh, and talks about his life, but very uh, visually interesting to watch an inspirational sort of video. So we'll uh, certainly embed that in the show notes and you will want to check that out. I promise you. All right, let's go to our poll of the week. Uh, good buddy, Tom Iovino does these for us. He asks a question this week. Does plywood belong in fine woodworking. That's, uh, you know, kind of goes with our conversation we had a couple weeks ago where we were talking about the various uh, things that go into something being fine woodworking. I don't think we talked much about that. I think, I don't know, would, I think all three of us might be in agreement that plywood certainly can be in fine furniture. Oh, yeah. I mean, but of it's course there's... Amazing plywood, yeah. There's crappy plywood that goes in the projects and that makes it, you know, bad. And then there's right. good plywood that goes in the projects that aren't executed well and that might make it bad. <laughs> you know, so uh, there's a lot of things contributing to what what is fine woodworking. But uh, so if you want to answer that question, you can do that. We'll put the link there in the show notes. And uh, I believe last week's question, let me just double check, is that what it is? Buying woodworking books. I can't remember yeah. if we even mentioned it last week. We did yes. mention it, but it was a total aside, like, you buy wood, woodworking books? Huh, okay. Okay. Well, anyway, there's a, basically, if you want to know how much the average person is spending or would spend on a woodworking book, you got all the layout of it. I'm not going to read it all here, um, but you got all the answers there. Almost uh, almost a thousand people replying to that one, so you can kind of get a real good uh, idea of what people would think about buying books and how much they'd spend. Man, if only a thousand people would have bought your book. A thousand? That was like the first month, kid. Oh, sorry about that. I was just thinking <laughs> if you guys wanted a nice dinner out on Friday. <laughs> you know, anymore, who knows? I don't know what's going on with that book. Uh, it's it's on, it's on Amazon, and I guess they're supposed to send me money once in a while, and I don't know what happens. I just... <laughs> I just I just do the woodworking. You know? They're like, can we pay you an Amazon Prime membership? <laughs> yes, gift cards. <laughs> Lee Valley gift cards is what I'm getting from them. Uh, all right, so this is where we do reviews, which doesn't happen very often. But um, today we're going to talk a little bit about something that's really been uh, all the buzz in the social spheres recently. And that is the fact that there are two, I, I won't even call them woodworking shows. They're furniture design shows and building shows, but they're competition reality shows, uh, which a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with. So two of them, and we promised last week we'd be talking about this, so we're going to talk about this today, give our opinions, kind of have a little quick back and forth on this. Excuse me. And then on Thursday, we have a fantastic interview with Brandon Gore, one of the judges from Framework. Uh, he's the one that looks really mean, and he's actually a good thing. He's not that mean. Uh, so great interview. It's going to be awesome next week. You'll, you'll try, actually not next week. It's going to be the weekend show, the weekend edition of Wood Talk. So expect that around Thursday night, Friday morning. So gentlemen, two shows, Framework, Ellen's Design Show. What do you think? 
I'll, quite you know honestly. Let, let's let, let Matt go first, because actually, isn't he our resident uh, reality show expert? <laughs> it's true. He has the best frame of reference when it comes to reality shows. That's because I'm the only one that's not uh, not cord cordless? Cord cut? Or cut cord cut? Cord cut. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, when it comes to any any design show, and I'm so glad that you actually like reference preferenced it by saying that it's a, a des- furniture design and construction kind of a th- or well, the way that you put it, it's not actual like building of the thing where you're going to be like have a discussion about tenant Morse and tenant. It's not a how to show. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. That's how I would put it. Okay. Uh, I think that both of these shows are definitely way more alike than they are different. Mm. Really, what it comes down to is they've got you know really talented contestants. Uh, after watching both of them, and I've only watched the first episode of both. There's only one episode of Ellen out at this point. Uh, I think there's a few out of Framework as, as we're recording this. Uh, but again, talented contestants. I think the judges are completely. While my knee jerk reaction about one set of judges was that they were a bunch of jerks, uh, the more I digested it, watched it, thought about it, and compared the two of them, I think the judges on both shows are absolutely totally qualified to be judges on there, have some great input. And I think the biggest difference between these two shows is the fact that depending on which network you're going to watch, you're going to get what that network wants for its typical viewers. So mm-hmm. if one network, Spike TV, they tend to have like very high drama shows, very in your face, very testosterone kind of uh, testosterone. I think I had that for dinner mm. the other night. Yeah, it's it's the original San Francisco <laughs> treat. Yeah. Um, and, and it was absolutely that's that's what you're going to get. High drama, just right in your face, just the I'm going to punch you in the face because I don't like what you said to me. Where on the other one, HGTV, I mean, let's get serious. Uh, I think most of our, our moms, if not our wives, are totally into this this channel. I enjoy it once in a while. I don't know if that says anything about me. Uh, but the way that the, the two of them are set up is very much along the lines of how their channels are normally, the type of shows that you would see on there. With that said, I actually enjoyed both of them. Um, I don't know if I, I have to absolutely turn in every time or tune in every time they come on. But it's something that it's kind of neat to see, to be quite honest. Mm. What do you think, Shannon? Um, <laughs> I was a little panicked because I, I saw episode one and three of Framework. Right. Um, I, uh, like you, Mark, have no uh, – I have no cord. <laughs> I have no cord anymore. So uh, there was no watching it on TV. But I found Framework on um, Spike's website. But they only show – uh, I think the most current episode and then like the pilots available. And if you wait more than a week, you can't watch the full show anymore. But I watched one in three of framework before Ellen's show even came on the air. And I was really nervous that I was going to have to turn in my woodworking card because I don't have any tattoos ah. and I don't like wear <laughs> skinny jeans and have multiple piercings and things like that. Cause that's apparently what shame you on have you to sir. be to be a designer now. So that tells you something Um, because then when you go to Ellen's show and it's so kind of different I mean there's like a kooky girl that you know is is kind of geek chic and then there's like the the Colorado man's man woodworker wearing the flannel and then you know it's it's more of the warm and fuzzy side but I agree with Matt in that they are very similar when you walk away you take away the editing and the soundtrack it's pretty much the same show um you know the lighting is different uh it feels like framework was produced by the guys that did the matrix <laughs> you know it's lots of very dark backgrounds and ominous 
tones and a little more of a music. stylistic choice. Uh, yes, absolutely. Framework. I mean, even like the the um, elimination scenes, it's very very different. You know, it's all light and airy, and you know. <laughs> happy and fun and welcoming and tell us all about your design on Ellen show on in framework. It's here's what you did wrong. <laughs> it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's fun. It, it is what it is. It's very fun. If you like the drama part of reality TV framework, you will definitely enjoy, but I really enjoyed Ellen show. Um, I felt like what's, what I like about it is there's so few, um, contestants, so I don't know. They must be doing like a free week or something like that. Cause they, they can't, Maybe they could put together a show with, I think there's only like six contestants. If you eliminate one person a week, that's only six episodes. Okay, right. So maybe they're going to have like a non-elimination week or whatever. But that's the one thing I found about reality shows is I never like them at the beginning because there's just too many characters to keep track of. And my my brain's not, I'm not smart enough, I guess, to keep track of 16 people. Well, half the time, you're like, who ever, is, who's that person? I've never even seen them right, before. I've never seen that person before. <laughs> or when and, they have very similar tattoos. Right. Well, invariably, because it's still the same time slot, right? You know, 30 minutes or an hour time slot. Yeah. They they edit it down so much that it doesn't make any difference. I really enjoyed Ellen's show because we got a good look during the build phase of, of each contestant's build. That was kind of cool. I also like the fact that they partner up with a design team. And obviously, there's people behind the scenes who apply finish. Because there was finish on those yeah. projects <laughs> right. come reveal. Somebody right. did it. Um, but they were very upfront to say, hey, you can't build you know, these designs in three days. Um, they didn't really – I think they made a passing mention on Framework that you know, this is really, really hard what they're trying to do. On Ellen's show, they just came right out and said this is impossible. Like it wouldn't be possible without this army of people and like 40 people walk through the door and say, yeah, hi. We're the people that like clean everything up and sand it and – finish it and everything so yeah. it was nice that they acknowledged that but framework it felt like a lot more and i don't mean the drama and everything it felt like a, a lot more of a serious design like um ellen's show was kind of designing for the mass market like the people the judges themselves were people that work in large corporations that sell a lot of um not one-off stuff in other words, here's the design. If your design wins, we're going to mass produce it and push it out to the masses. Framework felt like more of a boutique one-off type design, yeah, um, like higher-end customer. And with that, I think, came a higher expectation from the judges. I mean, they were harsh in a couple of instances, but there were some really cool design nuggets in there. Um, I really enjoyed um, in Framework one of the shows I saw, you know, what is this? Well, it's a it's a table. Well, it's not. It's too tall to be a table and, um, you know, and they start throwing out numbers. Well, it's 32 inches high, so it's too low to be a counter and too tall to be a table. What is it, you know? Right. Um, so th- there were some cool design specifics in there that I found really enjoyable that Ellen's show kind of glossed over. Um, so, you know, you can't really say, oh, I'm only going to watch this and not watch the other. I think there's a lot that can come out of both of them. Yeah, they both look really good to me. Uh, and I've seen, of course, we've all only seen one episode of uh, Ellen's show. Uh, I saw episode one and four of Framework. And, you know, after reading people's comments, because really I started talking about this and other people started talking about it weeks ago. And people have been watching it for a long time. And every time I brought it up, 
it was like this was the worst thing that has ever been made. Uh, like the way people <laughs> responded, it was like, uh, you know, it just wasn't worth the, the, the well, it's digital, so not film, that it was filmed on. Uh, it wasn't worth the hard drive space it was filmed on. But, you know, so I went into it going like, geez, this thing must be absolute, you know, crap. What am I in for here? And I came out of it going this you know what? I guess, I guess here's the thing. Maybe these people just don't watch a whole lot of reality TV. So for them, they heard, Oh, building furniture. This is going to be more how to focused," And they were disappointed to me. This was as formulaic as it could be. Both shows yeah. are, are completely derivative of every reality competition show that's been on for the last 10 years. So there, there was no surprise. Uh, I love watching top chef. I think it's one of the classier <laughs> reality shows. If you could say <laughs> such a thing, it's a, it's a very good way to put it actually. Yeah. And, and I don't feel like they get down in the muck and the you know the the mud uh, when it comes to personalities and drama. And it shows interesting stuff. But it was exactly you know both of these shows are very similar in structure to how they eliminate people, what they show, what types of challenges they throw at people. So to me, that was just par for the course. And the fact that it was about woodworking and not food, or you know, not some other topic that I'm really just not you know have no interest in. I was just pleased to see us seeing things like someone mentioned bent lamination on TV. You know, I was right. like, oh, well, there's a term people aren't familiar with. You know, you hear joinery things. I mean, to me, it's all good. It's just exposure for the craft. Uh, I thought overall, both of them were really, really great. Uh, personally, now, the thing is, I actually was listening to what the judges were saying, and I don't really think that the Ellen judges were any less harsh on the, right. the designs than the people on Framework. Personally, I mean, they were both very critical because the critical sound bites are so much more interesting than the, oh, that looks nice. I really like that. Oh, well done. This is so much better than the last one you did. All that stuff is cut out, and all you're going to hear are the sound bites that are the stuff that's going to make people cry. You know, because right. that makes for interesting TV. So we're going to get that on on both of these shows. I don't think either well, one and, is. And that's at the heart of it. Because like Ellen's show, um, the, the the drama, the lady that added the drama couldn't get along with the carpenter. Her design was awful. Yeah. She framed plywood with walnut. Right. She took plywood, covered the live edge with walnut and stuck it to the wall. But she stayed because she brought drama to the show. Dude, somebody I mean, somebody said on Facebook they referred to her as the Devil Wears Prada lady. <laughs> yes, yeah. I saw that. <laughs> well, I mean, the the formula was laid out for us by Ellen at the very beginning. I mean, I know she was kind of joking around, but she specifically said you're going to find people who like drama. And that's exactly what this, you know, this lady did. I mean, she she produced crap. And the person they let go, I was actually really kind of upset because he he himself said he was more of a an artsy person and he was designing for more of the mass market. It would have been really cool to see what he could do. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I went and looked the guy up, um, and he does have a very nice portfolio yeah. online. We don't, I can't remember his name, but I, that is one thing that as you were as we as I mentioned, my knee jerk reaction originally, especially with framework, was man, these these judges are just complete jerks. I mean, it looks like they're 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 almost kind of like directing you know what you're supposed to be thinking is excellent uh, furniture what is excellent design i did like the fact regardless of that initial knee jerk reaction that i had that they that brandon especially was breaking out the tape measure and pointing out look if you're going to call this a table this has to be at uh, you know an approximate height in this direction if you're going to call this a chair it should be this mm -hmm. because the main thing kept coming back to the end user who's your client because any successful furniture designer, any successful furniture maker knows that if you make pieces of furniture that 
people aren't going to find comfortable, that they're not going to use, that you know is not intended to be an art piece. It's not going to do. It's not going to do anything for you. It's not going to do anything for your client because they're not going to want to come back. You know, who wants yeah. to sit in a chair that's super uncomfortable because it's at the wrong height or feel really awkward? Especially watching Common sit at that one table. There is a table that they make in the first episode, and he's sitting there and he's like, "This is really good." Yeah, but when you go to eat, how do you think you're going to feel? You know, it's, you got to <laughs> lift up your elbows. It's little things like that that and I he, definitely took out some huge golden nuggets from. Yeah, and he's like, he seems like he's a pretty big guy, and he looked like a kid sitting at that table, you know. So yeah. it's you could totally see the point there, um, you know. And and overall, to compare the two for me, I actually like framework a little bit more, and, and the reason why is because I could relate to those contestants. The, they're people who, from top to bottom, are designing, you know, conceptualizing, designing, and executing this project by themselves. That's what the three of us do in our shops, mm-hmm. you know, nearly every day. Uh, to, so I can relate to that. And I like watching them come up with ideas and get through problems doing that themselves. Ellen mm-hmm. is nice. There's definitely cool stuff going on, but I can't relate to that type of building where you are the designer and then someone else, a whole team of people help you build it. Because here's the thing. Let's look at the relationship of uh, the Green Brothers and the Hall Brothers for the classic green and green furniture. Uh, I don't know, even people who are very familiar with the topic, uh, I don't think anyone truly knows just how much influence the Hall Brothers had on, on the final look of green and green furniture, because a lot of what they did came down to who was building it. And I think right. the same thing happens even today, if, especially in a show situation like this where they're, they're pressured to get something done. These designers are probably relying heavily on input from their builders. So this is actually a group think tank sort of uh, development as these, these pieces come to life. Uh, I think there's very few builders who are just going to be like, I'm, I'm robot builder, man, tell me what to do. You know, right. They're going to give you input and try to improve it. So it's, it's not just one mind trying to make magic and for us in our own shops most of the people listening to this you probably are that single person trying to make magic and that's that's why framework just kind of speaks to me a little bit more uh, not just because of the tattoos well Well, that's what i found interesting about ellen's show is the guy who who did win was the guy who was the actual woodworker yeah exactly um, did the concept and he's probably a schwarz fan because let's face it he built a campaign desk so, I mean, who else is talking about campaign furniture in the world but Christopher Shores right now? So, you know, I, the designer lady who who had such a problem with her carpenter because, I don't know, you do it. I don't build stuff. You know, she should have gone home. But I think, again, they kept her for drama reasons. Um, well, here's the other thing about that. Um, I, and I don't know for Ellen. I can't speak for that. But having uh, talked to, to Brandon Gore from Framework offline, he says that, in their situation, there was no input from producers in terms of who stays and who goes. He said, because there's a cash prize, uh, the Federal Trade Commission has very tight requirements on how this stuff is handled. So he, the producers had zero influence and every decision that was made in terms of who is kicked off the show was purely made uh, by the three judges. Now, I don't I don't know what the situation is on Ellen, but he well, yeah, she's offering a hundred thousand dollar cash prize also. So there probably has to be very similar if that is yeah. something that's federally regulated. Now, if well, the judges we, themselves thought it was better to keep someone around, then it would be their prerogative to make that decision. But the producers who we kind of think as being like the puppet masters right. aren't necessarily <laughs> doing what we think they're doing. Well, what the producers are doing is feedback or input into the editing. 
And, you know, the yeah. three of us certainly know how you can change the tone of something through editing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, any, think of that any time when, let's say, YouTube troll has pulled something you've said, a, a fragment of a sentence and used it against you, <laughs> right? you know, and, and when you look at the sheer number of cuts back and forth and different camera angles and clips in just the judging process alone, you know, they say, well, oh, this was really, really horrible. But, well, all you get on, on the broadcast is this was really, really horrible. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. And, and like the, the nasty lady who created the drama on Ellen's show, you know, all we saw was the guy storm out of the room and, you know, they cut to commercial and came back and everything was fine. So was there really drama there or was the <laughs> drama produced by the close-up camera angle and the bum, bum, bum soundtrack? Yeah. Well, and I always yeah. wonder when they show cutaways and like people say something and they have to show the reaction cutaway, how often that person's look that they gave was to something completely different. <laughs> like, right. This yeah. is just it's, stock footage keep, of a person's reaction. Craft services keeps like really sour thing on the table so they <laughs> yeah. can get stock footage of people oh, let's going, get thinking that. like, ew, what is that? Yeah, exactly. Right. All right. Well, yeah, let's I, uh, go ahead, Matt. I was going to say, I think, I think the big thing uh, about this between the two shows is again, like we were just talking about the whole editing process, the way that this is being stitched together. It is totally the producers are doing it very specifically for the typical audience on these channels. And these two channels could not be polar, more polar opposites than they actually are yeah. and who their main demographics are. Sure. It's funny because I was telling Sam, Sam didn't watch the show with me, but she's a huge fan of Ink Masters, which I believe is also on, on Spike. Mm -hmm. And everything about framework is the music. Even I swear the, the, the room where the designers sit in there and like kind of bicker at each other, all this stuff. It's the same exact room. It's the same exact music. It's the lighting. Everything is exactly the same thing. So they obviously have a specific formula that works for them. And what I'm really trying to say is for those who haven't watched the show or who have watched these shows, if you could get your mind to the point where you can just forget about these things being there. This is just – this is paint on the wall. It can be changed. The most important thing is seeing what's right in front of you and – grabbing these little golden nuggets you know i again there was a few in there that as much as my knee jerk reaction was like jerks the rest of it was like oh i'm gonna write that down <laughs> right and i think it's important to watch it with like your spouse or a non-woodworker because that i found myself uh, i watched ellen's show with heather i didn't uh, she didn't watch framework with me but we were watching it and she was thoroughly enjoying it, and i felt myself like being that guy in the movie theater points out the scientific inaccuracy and I had to shut myself up because there were, I, unfortunately I can't remember specifics now, but there were a couple of things like, you know, is he really going to put that joint together like that? And that was running through my head. And, you know, she was like, oh, look how beautiful that table is. And I'm thinking that thing's going to fall apart any second. And you have to remove the woodworker from the equation. I think Mark said this at the beginning and just look at it as kind of exposure you know, hey, they said Mortis and Tenon on on cable TV. How yeah. cool is that? You know. Right. <laughs> so just yeah. to kind of wrap it up, I'm curious uh, because of all the feedback and sort of the negativity that we've seen uh, in the woodworking world as far as these two shows are concerned. Overall, what do you guys think? Is this good for? I don't even know what how to how to phrase it. Is it good for for woodworking for craft in America for building things for handmade products? Um, do you think it's good or bad? Matt, go. Uh, I, I'm right down the road. I, I think it's, it's neat, but I don't, I cannot say that it's good or bad. I think it's, it's whatever you take from it. 
It's a reality show. It's a reality show. Yeah. <laughs> right. if, if you enjoy this type of stuff, you're going to you're more than likely going to really think that it's a good thing. If yeah. you're like, eh, it's I could watch this or Top Shelf, um, you're going to take the one that you like better. Yeah. Good or bad, Shannon. I think it's good in the same the same way that Woodworks was good um, because look at HGTV. Now, Spike doesn't really have any any uh, amalgams to it, but HGTV has got a lot of like flipping type shows and refurbishing type shows. That's the impression that the average Joe um, will have of, of furniture. Go to a flea market, buy some junk, repaint it and sell it for $50. You know, this is a totally different perspective. And I remember watching um, woodworking shows and then I saw David Marks and I was like, holy crap, that is real woodworking. Mm -hmm. That's that's a cut above. That's the next level woodworking. This is next level furniture design. This is next level furniture quality. And I think that's good. I think that's going to raise some consciousness that there is another level out there. It's not just that you know, strip it down, paint it fuchsia and put LED lights on it and sell it at the, uh, the swap meet. Yeah. Wait, you saw my next build coming up. (laughs) (laughs) My, one of my wife's favorite shows is what's the flea market flip. I think is what it's called. Uh, There's a bunch of different ones, but that's what they do. They give them like $200. They go to a flea market, buy stuff. And nine times out of 10, they, you know, flip it for twice that. Ooh, I made $200 on this. And it's like, $200 $200 wouldn't have bought half the lumber from that, <laughs> yeah. that mahogany side table that you just painted pink. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you know, overall, I think my opinion is that it's good. I may, may get some flack for this. Uh, I think it's very good. And my logic behind this comes from what's happened in other areas of interest. Uh, think about the food world. You could say that the Food Network and a lot of, you know, the food bloggers and just this um, really growing interest in food, how it's made, what goes into it, sourcing materials locally. Uh, all of this stuff has created an industry and a renewed like set of opportunities for people. Think about, you know, someone who is a new chef probably has more opportunities now than ever, uh, maybe to start uh, like a pop-up restaurant or a food truck and just kind of, you know, blaze their own trail. And I'm not in that world too much to know a whole lot about the reality of it. But from the outside, it seems like a good thing for the the world of food overall. So, you know, the average person is walking around saying things that used to be only talk that you might hear in the kitchen of, you know, a high-end restaurant. Uh, Yet people now know this terminology. And again, again, I don't know for sure if that's really a good thing, but it seems to be a good thing. So my hope... That's an excellent point because I'm coming at it from the same perspective you do. My wife loves Top Chef. I end Mm -hmm. up watching it because it's on. And I have learned so much about food, um, knowing nothing about it. Um, and you know, find, we find ourselves using terms like mise en place in our kitchen now, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and, and th- different chopped was another one, different, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, ingredients that I would have never heard of before that we now actually, Oh, look, we're at the grocery store. There's some, you know, whatever, let's buy it and, and make something out of it. Yeah. It's raised our awareness of, of fine cooking, fine dining or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's got to do the same thing for well, somebody that is ignorant to furniture design. Yeah. And if it does, then that means more people will go into furniture stores and maybe, uh, you know, see something and go, Oh, look at that joinery or wow, this is $2,000. Oh, look, it's made out of particle board. We know that particle board's not good. You know? So I think there may be an education pots, you know, opportunity for the general populace that could lead to more work, 
or more people getting into the area of building custom fine furniture. And I don't know if the end game here, if it's going to be a good thing or bad thing, but it's something. And I think we have all heard multiple times in, in various places, forums and whatnot, about how woodworking is dying. The craft is dying. Nobody goes to local guilds anymore, um, you know, and the sky is falling. Well, now here's something positive. The mainstream is talking about furniture and people are complaining that's the thing I don't understand when people get all hot and bothered about it. It's like, come on, this is what has to happen if the mainstream is going to be aware of it. So take it for what it is and let's just see the positive in it and see where it goes. You know no, what? I, I think woodworking is dying. I think furniture making is on the rise. Yeah. I mean, that's the we, we were having a little bit of this conversation before we started about like, you know, woodworking in its traditional sense and and i feel like i picked on norm last week but the norm abrams stereotype of the the bearded guy with the flannel who you know is maybe retired and gotten a little bit older and grandpa out in the in the wood shop yeah that stereotype that is woodworking and that is dying because when you look at all of our contemporaries and you look at some of the new YouTube channels and things like that, these younger guys that are mixing media that are, they don't care whether it's a hand cut dovetail or yeah. whether they use a mortise and tenon or whatever. They're about making this cool design. You know, it's, it's the makers versus the woodworkers. And, and I hate to say it, the woodworkers are dying. Oh, the makers are winning. They're losing big time. I mean, if you're just yeah. looking at numbers, a maker channel that's done well, uh, can accelerate and go way beyond the biggest woodworking channel that's out there. Uh, the potential there is huge. Um, we just have to ask yourself, do we want woodworking as it exists now to survive? It might be better if it dies. Yeah. I mean, at least the thing is, I think there's always room when things like this grow and interest in making things grows. There's going to be a need for people who specialize in the, you know, specifics that, that, that people want to know. So if someone says, well, you know, I want to get a little bit more into woodworking to make the woodworking elements of my stuff better, uh, then they need to go a little deeper. And that's where they find, you know, folks like us, magazines like fine woodworking and, uh, you know, people who are, are doing it at a higher level who may not have an interest in all those other things. Um, but I just think if like, if we just have an influx of people interested in making things, there's going to be uh, hopefully a trickle down sort of effect that everybody can benefit from. Well, my big concern, I haven't seen uh, any of the, since the second episode of Ellen hasn't come out yet. And I haven't seen any of the other frameworks shows. Uh, do they work with like new materials or is it still always kind of like the first one, they took them to a boatyard and had them tear apart stuff. I don't want people thinking that they could just drag a piece of junk to my <laughs> shop and go, Hey, build me something from this. <laughs> I think it's, there's always a challenge involved and I've only seen two. I honestly can't even the remember all the third details. One, but. They had to adapt and they had like random stuff, CDs, bungee cords, and they had to build a piece of furniture out of, you know, they we're able to use some other materials, but that they had to feature that. Yeah. It, it um, reminds me of the cooking stuff where it's like, they'll get the base ingredients, right. but then they have to include this one thing and how they showcase that determines how well yeah. they do. You have to throw monkey brains in. There with, you go. Uh, you know, the, the chicken and the lettuce. Yeah. But they're still working with raw materials in there. I think it's a whole other thing, but again, <laughs> it's a design show versus a, yeah. a, a how to woodworking show kind yeah. of a thing. So I, I agree. Any, anytime it draws attention, to what we're doing and get people thinking about it and, you know, going, oh, yeah, absolutely. That looks really cool. Maybe somebody around here could do that. Yeah. It's got to be a good thing. Totally. The, the one last parting comment I have to say about Ellen's show is why is it not available online? Why did I have to watch a pirated version on YouTube? I know. I was wondering the same thing. That's how I, I had to see it. I wonder if the guys over at Wood Magazine, since they're connected with HGTV, could 
uh, help get some you know, information. I mean, there are videos. <laughs> there's like behind the scenes and like the full unedited judging, which actually right. is quite interesting if you watch it. There's also um, like the winning design um, that has uh, a lot more detail on that desk. So there's some great extra stuff, but you can't get the episode. What's <laughs> yeah, up with that? I know. It's pain in the butt. Bugs me. Anyway, all right. Well, if you have some thoughts on these shows, if you think we're crazy and full of crap, or if you agree with us, give us some kickback. Uh, what is it? Kickback at woodtalkshow.com. Let us know what you think. And uh, well, speaking of kickback, we've got that coming up soon. But first, I want to tell you a little story. All right, sit down, guys. Relax. I'm going to tell you a little story. Oh, good. Over the holiday break, a couple of days before you know we really got into taking time off from work and all that good stuff, um, we were getting some work done in the bathroom, and I just it was too inconvenient to shave. So I had about ten days of beard growth, and I looked at it. I'm like, this is not bad. I'm kind of digging this. I think everybody, you know, every man has this sort of hidden desire to have a big full beard like Matt does. But we don't always act on it, right? So I'm like, yeah, this is a good excuse. I'm already this far into it. I, I feel like I'm past that itchy phase. I might be, right? And I start going further with it. So I'm about two weeks into it. And my face just, I want to rip my my cheeks off. Like it was, it, the itching didn't get any better. It was worse. And it was driving me nuts. And every time I would like wrestle with my son, he would be like, ow, 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 because it would scratch him and he'd get annoyed with it. So I'm like, all right, this thing has to go. So I go into the bathroom and I grab my Harry's Winston razor shaving kit. And I figure, you know what? If, if there's ever a time to use this thing and go clean, it's right now. Because like, you know, after you get some good beard growth and you shave it down, your skin is like baby soft after it, if it hasn't been shaved up to that point. So I was like, all right, let me shave this thing down. And I slapped on that that uh, beautiful smelling shaving cream that they have. Uh, shaved down nice and clean. And I swear, I, I was it was like 100 pounds were taken off of my shoulders. I felt, I felt so clean and so beautiful, although I still had my face. So that only goes so far. And so the door flew pretty. open. <laughs> I felt so pretty. And then I showed Nicole and she said, what? Now, she actually hates the, the whole facial hair thing. So she was delighted to see it. But man... That razor gave me the cleanest shave, and it was such a relief and uh, it, it, good stuff. Anyway, so I expect you to say the door flew open, and suddenly Nicole goes, "The babysitter is here. We're staying in here." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you guys think happens uh, when you got a baby, but it it, it doesn't go down like that. I can tell you that much. Uh, well, it's been quite a few years <laughs> since I've had to worry about that. <laughs> All right. Well, now since we are getting into February, and that means Valentine's Day is coming up. And unless you want another box of crappy chocolates or, I don't know, some, some last-minute crap gift from Walgreens, you should probably tell your friends and family to set you up with a Harry's razor set. Uh, this is just in time for Valentine's Day. Our listeners can get a free engraving on the Chrome Winston razor uh, just by using the code WOODTALKVALENTINE at checkout. I mean, can you imagine it? Your, your own personalized razor, you know, with your name on it or some little message. I've got these visions of Matt kind of shaving his beard with one hand and sipping grape soda out of a wine glass with his other hand. Who doesn't do that? You didn't do that the other day when you were shaving? (laughs) Yes, I should have done that. Uh, The Chrome Winston set includes a razor, three quality blades, and your choice of hairy shaving cream or foaming gel. And I'm a huge fan of the shaving cream. Uh, I don't really like the gel so much. I find it sticks between the blades, but the cream uh, seems to rinse a whole lot better. Uh, Just go to harrys.com now and you can save $15 and get the Chrome engraved Winston set for just $25. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter the code... Would talk Valentine. That's a great deal. I, I see. I've got one now. I want the one with the engraving in it. 
maybe you should set that one aside for Mateo for when he gets older, and then you can get yourself a new one. <laughs> there you go. That's justifiable. All right. Well, thanks to Harry's for that, and let's move on to our voicemail. Now, let's do a kickback. We're going to do this a little bit faster. All these kickbacks today were about that heating of the cabinet thing. So let's just <laughs> let's just read the first uh, couple of them and quickly get to our voicemail since we're a little bit late here. Uh, first one here is from Roberto. He says, so as I was listening to the latest Wood Talk number 214, there was a question about storing glues in a cabinet. Uh, here's a hard lesson I learned while back. Uh, here's the pics to prove my folly. Had a very cold shop, no insulation, and was tired of having the finishes and glues and paints get frozen every winter. Decided to use my Coleman cooler and some heat lamps as my warming solution. I threw the glue, finishes, and spray uh, a spray can in, turn on the heat lamp, and shut the lid. I had no idea what I was thinking. What you guys see is the result after being gone a few weeks. Now, we still have this picture, guys, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we've yeah. got all three of them. We will post this picture. So if you have a chance, you got to go to woodtalkshow.com and look at this show, uh, look at the show notes for this episode, and we'll show you the picture of what happens when you stick uh, heat lamps inside of a plastic cooler. Yeah, that is definitely <laughs> not what I meant when I mentioned that, and hopefully nobody else does. Play. I think I even mentioned like a timer, because I was thinking, turn it on for half an hour, turn it off. Half Man, an hour, turn it off. That's something else right there. Uh, all right, Matt, you want to get the next one? All right, we have this one from Glenn, and this we have actually two kickbacks from Glenn, but this is Glenn with a double N, and the other Glenn is just regular N. Uh, so Glenn with two N says, hi, in the last episode, you tackled a question about a heated cabinet to keep paint from freezing. Here's my idea. Build a recessed shelf into the wall connected to the house, and he gives us a link from Instructables. It's all about how to create recessed shelving. Cool. Then put an insulated door on the front, then the cabinet inside is on the warm side of the insulation, Essentially, in the house, you could even create a small vent with, say, a computer fan to blow a little bit of air from the house into the cabinet and out into the garage. So, in other words, um, it gives a little air circulation, and you don't have to worry about a bulb in there pulling a Roberto. You just got to get that. You got to get it past the significant, uh, significant other design right. committee to have something like that jutting hey, out. Honey, into I'm gonna your knock house. a hole in the wall. You're cool with that, right? <laughs> you don't mind, do you? <laughs> Let, Let me go to look at instructables. Perhaps in the all steps thing link that he sent us, there's actually something in there about how to hide this. Yeah, Whew. that would be hard. All right. Anyway, Shannon, you're up comes from Glenn. He said, uh, Glenn with one in. Hey guys, you may have already received this, but I found a blog post by John Heise, a fellow Canadian who has to work in a cold shop. He made, just as you suggested, a cabinet with a light bulb in it. He hooked up a thermostat so it would only go on when it was cold enough. Looks like he was having problems with the bulb burning out and some scorching on the plywood. So he switched to an old hairdryer, which doesn't sound better. <laughs> uh, the, the post covers a few good points about building such a cabinet, but he does state that the, the decision that the decision on if it's safe enough for your shop is completely up to you. So hmm. there's a, a link to how he built it. Um, I just have to throw in that I remember having a conversation with Roy Underhill when I was down at his school about the dry kiln that Elia Bazzari constructed in the shop to dry out our um, steam bent uh, Windsor arms and how he remember coming back from lunch and the fire truck passed him on the way to his shop and how his heart stopped only to discover that it was the courthouse down 
on the street that was burning to the ground and not his shop. <laughs> still, the thought was my shop is in ashes because of that light bulb in a box. Yeah. All right. So we, the last one we have here is from Tim. He suggests using some sort of a heat tape that uh, plugs into an outlet and then you could uh, have a temperature control on the outlet. And we also have a voicemail kickback from Jeremy, which uh, I'm going to say is my favorite method. Uh, let's, let's hear what he has to say. About the... Whoops. Oh, that hey guys, is, this is brilliant. Jeremy. Um, about the finishing cabinet, I think Mark was on the right uh, track there. But instead of putting a bulb inside, get one of the low wattage reptile mats that you use for heating on the outside of cages. You put it on the back of a metal cabinet, and there you go. Yeah, I, I totally forgot about that. They make these little black adhesive-backed mats that are meant to go under uh, an enclosure or a tank and just attach right to the glass. And I guess you don't have to attach them with the adhesive if you don't want to, but kind of like a heating blanket. And it just puts a low amount of heat that radiates through. So imagine putting that on the back of a metal cabinet or something like that, and that could very well just make the difference of a couple of degrees and in a way that's already being used that same exact way to heat a reptile uh, habitat. What so, about something like a waterbed heater? Those are pretty. pretty I tame know nothing about waterbed water heaters. What do those look like? It looks like a mat that it's plugs into the outlet, and it's like a, just, a big heating blanket type thing. Basically, yeah, yeah. Do, it just sits underneath the bladder, the the actual mattress, water mattress yeah. itself. Huh. Yep. Cool. So a lot of cool ideas there, and of course, uh, we don't recommend any of them. Just for safety reasons. We're just saying, here's what other people are doing. <laughs> you know, totally, totally off on a tangent because I know people are, this is definitely, I can only imagine going, Matt's such an idiot for bringing this up. Why, considering the fact that we have so many chemicals and stuff underneath our kitchen sinks, is it such a big deal to bring in a can or two of finish into the house? I guess I just don't understand. That's what I used to do. Uh, I would put them in a big box, just a cardboard box, and I'd bring them inside and just put them somewhere a little bit warmer. Like if you got a mud room or something like that, I would just bring them in for the for the winter. Yeah, that's 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 just me. I know we we need to move on, but that's just one of those I keep thinking. I'm like, oh, this is getting so more complicated. Just it's not <laughs> what, as what bad putting as a you hole in your wall and uh, building a little. <laughs> that's not too complicated. What that's are you not complicated. <laughs> Please refer to our episode on Project Creep. When, there you uh, go. You think about putting a hole in your wall. Yep. <laughs> All right. We should get a sponsor with a divorce attorney who's going to handle projects like that. We should. Uh, all right. Let's move into our email. First one here is from Cricket, not Jiminy, sure, sure, just, sure, just named sure. Cricket. My question involves when to cut multiple tenons versus one larger beefier tenon. It seems you may get more glue surface on multiple tenons, but the sheer strength of a singular thick tenon in theory would be more structurally sound. Have you guys dabbed in these before? What are your thoughts? I have to admit that cutting multiple tenons is a blast and looks really cool, but when they're buried in the final piece, I'd rather have durability. All right, so here's the thing. I don't actually have a very clear answer for this because I'm really only depending on my limited personal experience and what I've read in those um, joint strength tests that we always see, which are Mm -hmm. of debatable value in the first place. Um, One thing that does seem to be true, and this I believe was a fine woodworking article that specifically declared that the thicker the tenon, the stronger the joint came out to be. Now, their limit there was three-eighths of an inch on a three-quarter piece of stock. So I don't know that this necessarily answers that question because I'm I'm doing the the um, 
chest of drawers right now, which has big eight quarter frame parts. Uh, and those pieces are really substantial. So I didn't want to just do one big fat tenon because it would have been massive. So I divided it up into two smaller tenons. And I think each one of them is like three eighths of an inch. So yeah, I think you can, you can definitely say that the tenon is stronger, the thicker you go, but there might just be a breaking point where that's no longer true. If you go too thick and now the mortise has to be, you know, the adjoining mortise has to be just as big to accommodate the large tenon. There may be a point where, no, it's actually not stronger anymore. And two individual tenons turns out to be stronger in, in terms of breaking up the, uh, you know, giving you a little bit more structural integrity across the width of the workpiece. So I don't really know for sure. I'm just, you know, maybe other people have a personal experience with dual tenons versus large honking tenons. We're talking about, you know, big ones here. We're not, <laughs> we're talking about big ones here, uh, <laughs> not smaller scale. Uh, so if you're going and you're working with eight quarter stock and you need to get a, a nice mortise and tenon joint, do you find it stronger to have two tenons there or a singular large tenon? Um, same, same thing as before. Kickback at woodtalkshow.com. Let me know if you have experience with that. Sweet. Matt. Well, you know what? We must have a tenon-themed show on top of our design-related one because I have a tenon question also. And this came in from Dan. And he says, I'm ready to take on my next larger scale project, and I'm a little stumped as to what method may be the best to put mortises in the curved top portion of the footboard. And he sent us a photo photo of this. This particular footboard is actually kind of in the mission style uh, of furniture. So there's a lot of slats in between uh, the top rail and the bottom rail. And he says, I, I'm, I'm using this picture as inspiration for the board for the bed I plan on building of cherry. In past projects, I have made mortises with the drill press using a Forstner bit and a chisel to clean it up as I don't have a mortising machine. With the curved face being the one that receives the mortises, I'm a little concerned as to how to do this. Do I drill the mortises in place to its final depth before I cut the curve? In this case, there'll be they will just be drilled to different depths based on where the curve will lie. Is there a better way to do this with a router that I'm not thinking of? I'm mostly a power tool shop with a small hand tool selection. So when I first took a look at this, again, as I said, it's kind of the mission style uh, footboard with a lot of those slats in there. My first recommendation, and I know that this is probably what I will end up doing if I ever take on a project like this, is before I ever cut that curve, I'm going to lay out for where the mortises are and I will start the drilling process because I do my mortises in a very similar way. Uh, I'll, I'll drill those out and for sure where at the apex of that arc, I will drill as deep as possible. And then once I've got everything drilled and laid out and I know that the holes are above that apex, what I'll end up doing is coming in cutting out the arc, and then because I essentially have pilot holes established, I will then go back into those and uh, drill them just a little bit deeper if necessary for the tenon, uh, and then, of course, clean them out. And my reasoning for this is because if I'm, especially if I'm, I were to drill, well, even if I was using a drill press, if I were to cut the curve first and then try to drill the hole, I'm sorry, but there's going to be a little deflection as that drill bit is starting to go in, and it's not going to go in uh, 90 degrees to the surface. So if I drill before I cut the material away, I at least have that pilot hole, and it's a lot easier to continue drilling in the direction you want to go if that hole is already existing. So in my mind, this is probably the, the easier way to do this. Um, I think you get a pretty decent result. I know Dan did write back with another question asking about how to – uh, do the shoulders for the tenons themselves. Um, 
again, that, that's a topic we can bring up. But I, I think specifically for drilling out the mortises, it'd be my preferred method. Can I give you a little cheat method on this? And this is something that I used on the Morris chair, which had exactly the same thing, slats in a curved top and bottom rail. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it doesn't allow you to get a whole lot of depth. Well, I guess you could if you used a different type of bit. But basically, cut the curve first and then go with a slot cutting, bearing guided slot cutting bit, which is probably going to get you about a half inch depth. Uh, you could cobble something together where you go over it with a straight bit with the, the piece vertical uh, so that you can actually get a little bit deeper than that. But you put the groove, plow it all the way through, and then you just kind of organize your slats in both the top and bottom, and then you just cut little inserts out of the same wood and drop those little inserts into that slot in between your slats, and you fill mm-hmm. them. And, and make sure they sit a little proud because you're going to glue them in And once they're glued in, you just flush them to the surface with a flush trim bit, a little bit of sanding, and no one will ever know that you didn't actually drill and mortise those individually. So it is a little bit of a cheat, but oh my gosh, does it make it easier? Like you don't have to, it doesn't matter what the curve is. You cut the curve and then the bearing is following the curve. Uh, so it, it gives you perfect results each time. If if you don't mind having just a, you know, shorter depth of of that groove, it would only be about a half inch deep. But in some cases, those slats are, are mostly decorative. Uh, so it may not matter so much. You know, it's funny because I was originally going to try and, and describe something like that. But once I started writing it, I confused the hell out of myself. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I like it. So it's, I decided to stop there before yeah. it became a we're never writing back to that show. There you go. It's a bit of a cheat, but it, it's one that works pretty well. There See, you go. What's interesting is why we would classify that as a cheat. Sounds perfectly legit to me. It's a cheat just because it is. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you know it when you see it. Like I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't have any problems doing it, but I am not going to try to kid myself that it is not a hack of sorts, a cheat. And actually, until you show me some x-rays of genuine stickly furniture and they didn't do the same thing, I'm going to, I don't know what they did. I'm going to say it's not a cheat. All I know is I did it and it looks fantastic and I don't regret doing it. Well, and actually that that answers Dan's follow-up question, which was specifically like, how do I, do I match those shoulders? the tendon shoulders to that curve what you just described would make it a heck of a lot easier there are no shoulders there are no shoulders that's the joy of the whole thing yeah all right where we go there are no shoulders Mm -hmm, sure Mm -hmm. all right this uh questions from craig i was watching the latest uh renaissance woodworker episode that's a good good man there people still watch that I know. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, one of the things that uh, I mentioned, that Shannon mentioned, was that the saw needs to be sharp and set properly. So two questions then. How does a novice sawyer know if if there's an issue with the set as opposed to technique? And secondly, when do you know when it's time to sharpen? I assume few hybrid woodworkers like myself are sharpening their own saws. I especially do not want to be practicing on my Lee Nielsen dovetail saw. So are people sending these out to be sharpened? I use my dovetail saw only a few times a month, typically in hardwoods, though. How long would something like that last before it needs to be sharpened? So uh, first question, if your saw has an issue with uh, sharpness or improper set, if it's set improperly, you will know. Um, if your back saw, your straight plated back saw is actually cutting a curve, that's a set problem. Um, if you start a cut vertically and it starts to like waver off that line um and no matter what you do like if you tweak your wrist to try to pull it back online it keeps going that way um deviating it's a set issue uh when the the teeth are set improperly essentially what's happening is there's more 
metal to one side um, of the blade and it's actually pulling and tugging it. And it almost feels like somebody else is tugging on your saw while you're cutting it. It has a mind of its own. It's definitely a, a very noticeable thing. Now, if you've never used a handsaw before, maybe it's not noticeable. But if you're like, man, I can't get this thing to cut straight no matter what I do, I would really look at it at it being um, a set issue. Same thing when the saw is dull. It won't so much deviate as much, but it really tears up the wood. Um, and you have to work real hard. And the harder you work, the more you kind of force the saw out of the line. It's the same thing with a bandsaw. If you try to take a resaw cut with a, um, a duller blade, you get that barrel cut because the blade kind of deviates and tries to take the path of least resistance. So um, second question is, how do you know when it's time to sharpen? This is, this is kind of a tough question uh, because you get used to various levels of dullness um, and you don't notice that it was dull until you sharpened it and go, man, this thing cuts a lot easier. Um, I rely upon the sound. Um, a sharp saw makes very little noise. A dull or really dull saw, it growls in the cut. It really vibrates a lot and makes a much, much louder sound. Then there's the other thing that is just called uh, a sharp saw is what's known as sticky sharp. If you just lightly touch your hand to the tooth line of a saw, your your fingers will actually stick to it and they won't come away right away. Um, you know, you can look at the teeth of a saw and if you see reflection, that's obviously a dull saw, but that's a really dull saw. If you see reflection um, on the teeth, you've got a lot of work to do on that saw. Most of us don't get to that point, but you can kind of run your hand along the saw and your hand just kind of slides over it. If it sticks and I'm not, don't jam your hand into this people. If you draw blood, that's you're pushing too hard, but literally just lightly touch and your fingers will actually stick to it. That is a sharp saw. If it doesn't do that, it's time to, to sharpen it. And, you know, um, can I just chime in here too, as someone who is very similar to him in terms of being hybrid style and only using the saw, you know, maybe once a month periodically, um, I have yet to sharpen my Lee Nielsen dovetail saw. I've mm-hmm. had it for years. If yeah. you are a, an occasional user, uh, like I am, it, it's going to take a long time before that thing isn't cutting as good as it should cut. Absolutely. You and know. that's what I was just going to say. I don't think he needs to worry about sharpening his dovetail saw a couple of times a month. Um, and, you know, even if it's really, really hard wood, you know, it, 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 they're meant to, that's what they're meant to do. That's all I use. Oh. You know, right. I don't you're use a any Bobinga software. fan. So right. um, I, I don't think he really has to, to worry about it. Now, his question most of these places do sharpen the saws. You send it back to Lee Nielsen, they'll sharpen it for you. Bad Axe is the same way. Gramercy is the same way. They will sharpen it for you. Um, in fact, when you buy it, keep the box it came in uh, for that exact reason. Same thing with uh, the forest woodworking, like the woodworker two blades yeah. that come in that perfect case meant yep. to send it back. Yep. Do the same thing with your Lee Nielsen, your Gramercy saws. They've got a little special box that it came in keep it and set it back. Um, some of them do it for free. I think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they used to do it for free and it's not mm. anymore, but, um, I know, uh, Mark Carroll keeps telling me to send back one of my original bad axe saws because he sharpens things up 
differently now and it's much, much better. And I keep telling him, I don't want to give up my saw. I'll sharpen it myself. But yeah, you can go a real long time. Now, Mark, in your case, after a couple of years, I bet if you were to sharpen that saw, you would go, holy crap. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I'd see a difference. Wow, this thing works a lot better. But it's not like you're like, man, this thing's terrible. As soon as I feel like the work is suffering or my wrist is suffering and I have to work a little harder, that's that's when I'll be driven to do it. Uh, But the first you know, the first sharpening of that for a person who uses it like I do, that lasts years uh, before anyone really needs to do something. But you're right. I, I probably should get it uh, tended to. Cool. I use my saws all the time and I can go months and months without having to sharpen them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not a, it's not something that you need to really worry about doing too much of. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for us. If you want to help support the show, you can do that. Go to woodtalkshow.com. Look over on the left-hand side and you'll see some donation links there. You could also get a t-shirt at twwstore.com and you could look us up in the iTunes store and leave us a five-star review. And actually we had uh, about eight of them come in. So I can't certainly can't read them and give everybody credit. Uh, but one in particular, Smokin' 14, I thought was pretty funny. He says, Love Fest. Hi, guys. I love Wood Talk. I love the thought of a bonus podcast. I love the idea of Wood Talk Weekend. I love the new website. Hopefully this doesn't come across creepy, but I just love you guys. Well, we love you too, Smokin' 14. We love you too. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not weird at all. Uh, there's no, a lot, I'm not feeling the love. There's a lot of love on this podcast, except for Matt, apparently. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. What's up with oh. that? You just caught it before so, dinner. It's so cold out. That's, <laughs> That's right. Why. All right, Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. All right. Hey, folks, do you have a comment, question, or topic suggestion? Maybe some of the awesome kickback. Several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Of course, you can email us at kickback at woodtalkshow.com, and you can leave a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes for today's show or any downloads from previous episodes, you're going to find all of those over at woodtalkshow.com. Sounds good. All right. Well, have a have a good one, everyone. And we'll catch you next time. See ya. See ya.